You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. So some jurisdictions make frequent appearances and conversations about BEPS 2.0. United States, Switzerland, Ireland, even Hungary, to name a few. But we recently had a conversation with our Colombian colleagues that got us talking about others of the inclusive framework, the 140, if you will, that feature less often in the reform discussion. BEPS 2.0 could have significant implications for them, but do we have any idea of what those would be? We thought it'd be interesting to chat with a few of our LATAM colleagues, for example, and find out. With me today are Courtney Wallace, international tax partner from KPMG's Detroit office, Armando Lara, partner in charge of international tax from KPMG Mexico, and the leader of KPMG's LATAM technical tax hub, Jair Montufar, lead international tax partner from KPMG Panama, Christina Sansonetti, lead international tax partner for KPMG Costa Rica, and Luis Eisenberg, director in charge of international tax from KPMG Uruguay. I'm so glad we're talking with more of our LATAM colleagues. There's been really a growing interest in investment in the region, not only with shared service centers and the like, but really with full risk operations as well. Our clients really need to hear from you as tax incentives historically have been a huge part of the equation in that part of the world. Okay, so let's jump right in with pillar one. Armando, where are our biggest challenges for our multinationals with regard to Mexico operations? In relation to pillar one, of course, we are waiting what will be the final resolutions in certain specific items in relation to amount A and amount B, what will be the positions in the exclusions. Mexico is expecting to generate more money from pillar one. There won't be any uh, probably affectation in the tax collection due to the fact that we don't need to eliminate any digital service tax. Oh, right, because Mexican digital tax is a VAT and not a DST. Yes. Ah, so a short and sweet answer for Mexico, although I expect the same is not true for our other guests. Is that right, Luis? Yes, well, in the case of Uruguay, it is difficult to say, but we, we would expect some allocation under our Pillar 1. A hardest question, I would say, is the net effect for Uruguay. Briefly speaking, Uruguay is one of the few Latin American countries that apply territoriality and source rule as the base of, for income taxation. And until the year 2018, income obtained abroad, for example, providing audiovisual services electronically to the Uruguayan market, those were not taxed. And as from January 2018, and following the recommendations made by the OECD in the PEPS program, Uruguay introduced taxation on the income from those activities, which is still applying until now. One of the conditions of PEPS 2.0 is that each country will have to dismantle specific regimes for uh, the taxation of income from the digital sector. So uh, in the case of Uruguay, I don't think that it is clear whether the net effect from dismantling this tax and receiving potential attribution of income under Pillar 1, if it will be positive to Uruguay in terms of revenue or not. Uruguay is a small country in terms of population. We have only three and a half million inhabitants. As you know, the threshold for receiving attribution of income under Pillar 1, amount A, 
is at least 1 million euros of income obtained by the foreign entity in this jurisdiction. So it's not clear whether many companies will fall into that category. Uruguay has approximately $50 million yearly in terms of taxes under this new regime. So the net effect, it is doubtful whether it will be positive for Uruguay or not. But there is a lower threshold, right, for attracting an allocation of amount A for developing countries, 250,000 euro. Yes. Does that help your No, country? That is, okay. uh, you are above that threshold in terms of the gross domestic product. So we fall into the 1 million euros category. In the same way, Costa Rica, the country's population is approximately 5 million. So that will probably limit the application of the new nexus for Costa Rica. So they haven't made the calculations yet, but the expectation is that some source of income will be received in Costa Rica. In the case of Panama, we also expect to receive some allocation of the profits from Pillar 1, specifically from Amount A. We do not expect that to be a significant allocation, mainly because some of the multinationals that are expected to be in the scope of Pillar 1s that have sales in Panama, it is not clear how many will surpass the threshold of the 1 million uh, euro revenue per year. And in any case, as it was also mentioned by my colleagues, Panama is a very small market. It has 4.5 million people, so it is rather small. So any allocation, even if there is something to be allocated to Panama, would be very, very limited as well. Something else is that the territorial system that Panama follows is very particular in the sense that services being provided from outside of Panama to a Panamanian recipient are generally subject to withholding tax when the payment is considered as a deductible expense for the Panamanian taxpayer. So although Panama does not have a digital service tax per se, tax that applies not only to digital services, but to services in general, whenever there is a deduction, if Pillar 1 will imply the repeal of those measures, and that would have a significant impact on the tax collection in, in Panama. Probably the balance would be negative if that is considered. And Courtney, we were wondering out loud whether the $250,000, that economic threshold, was appropriate, because who did it apply to? And especially as we think about the larger multinationals versus smaller jurisdictions, potentially, to be able to get a piece of the pie and participate. The amount seems interesting. So I do think maybe there's some threshold required, but it seems like a significant one where we have it today. I don't know why it surprises me. I'm a little bit embarrassed that it does surprise me. But how many of the 140 inclusive framework members get the benefit of the 250,000 threshold? as opposed to the million, and particularly countries that have small populations. So they just don't have a lot of consumers. My gut tells me that those thresholds should be adjusted. Do you have a sense as to how many jurisdictions benefit from that? Actually, no, Kim. I don't have any sense of that. But the recollection that I got from other sources is that basically they are focusing more in small countries located in Amazon, specific small nations in Southeast Asia. But there is no record about who will be benefitful to these amounts and taking into consideration the experiences that we have just heard from our colleagues in, in LATAM, seems to be that there will be a very reduced number of countries that they will have access to this benefit of the 250,000. It's interesting because I don't think that I've seen anything written up on it 
either on how that amount was otherwise reached. I think to your point, Kim, who otherwise would have been participating in part of that discussion? Right. Because it's one thing if you say, okay, we're going to have the threshold and out of the 140, we're going to have 30, 40, 50 countries that benefit from the lower threshold. It's something else. If we're talking about a significantly smaller number, I would think that what you do is you look at the amount that is collected in DSTs and you maybe scatter graph that and you use that to plot out what you think the distribution of amount A really ought to look like, at least as some kind of benchmark to double check that it's not a completely arbitrary threshold that's not going to replace revenue that is currently being brought in by those countries because they're depending on it. It makes a lot of sense to really know, not just to guess, but to know with more or less certainty who will win and who will lose in the application of this pillar. I think it's an interesting point. This entire discussion is about winners and losers. The whole thing is about saying there are too many losers. Right. And if I'm agreeing to otherwise take a big tool out of the toolbox for the digital services tax, is that a good deal for me or is that not a good deal for me? Even though Costa Rica does not have the provision like the one that Jair explained regarding Panama, where any payment that is utilized and deducted in Costa Rica is subject to taxation, in practice, the tax authorities in Costa Rica has been interpreting that any service provided online or digital services, particularly in the cases where a specific software platform or network link has been used, is subject to a 25% withholding tax rate. The um, application of that interpretation of the tax authorities has been limited to, in practice, to business to business, because at the end, final consumers does not withhold any withholding tax because they do not deduct expense. But this is something that needs to be addressed in Costa Rica because it is not in the law, it's an interpretation of the tax authorities. So it will probably be challenge to restate what the tax authority has been interpreting or what will be the outcome if there is something that has to be included in the law in order to, be, to, to make the situation clearer. One of the things that we have discussed in the Latin area is they will put more homogeneous rules for everybody, but the problem is that the cost from many countries will be very high in order to adapt them. The result will be that in the net, in certain circumstances, basically in the pillar one, there will be a probably lot of losses in relation to the tax collection rather than to increase the tax collection for these principles. That seems like a tough pull to swallow. This type of recommendations from the OECD, we speak to them as soft law. They are not law. They are not obligatory for the parties. They come in a package, so you cannot cherry pick which part you will enter and which not. You know, you either adhere or not. If and to the extent that a jurisdiction is a net loser with respect to amount A, if amount B was appropriately scoped, then it may be that amount B reimburses that loss. How do you get there, right? The devil's in the details, but... Definitely, yes. And let me tell you one point. Colombia our, mm-hmm. uh, has said, or our partners in Colombia have said that they started the contacts with many tax authorities in the tax administration. And what is the expectation from the Colombian side is that the amount with has to be enough in order to see if they can probably recover all of the tax collections that probably they will lose if they start to implement 
implement these measures. They are not expecting a lot of tax collection in amount A, but in amount B, they say, well, we can have a very good base here in order to recover, as you have said, the tax collection from the measures that you need to take in order to get rid of all of your DST that are in place now. But can you rely on an amount B allocation in every instance to do the trick? I don't know that you can or you should. Mm, yeah. Stricter limited risk doesn't mean zero risk. And so what happens when the principal is making losses? Should there also be an allocation of losses into those jurisdictions that are going to get a cost plus based amount B or count on it in the ordinary course? I don't know. Actually, I don't know why not you can do that. Depending of the way that is drafted, it seems to be that there will be the possibility that they can allocate losses. But and I don't know if the countries would like to see that you can allocate a loss generated by the holding company in relation to the activities that have been carried out in your territories. This is a very good question, and perhaps there will be now an easy solution for that. But my understanding is they are still discussing this part. From discussions with our government in relation to amount B, their position is that they suspect that in many cases you might get allocation under amount A, but not any allocation under amount B. Particularly, they are thinking of activities which are developed in a completely remote way, which might be subject to allocation under amount A, but not under amount B because there are no physical presence and no local distribution or marketing activities. So from exchanges that we have, they have the doubt and I share it in a way on whether in many cases that we are considering whether any amount would, could be attributed under amount B to Uruguay. Right. So you'd have to have a rule that assumes a baseline arm's length level of local marketing and distribution assets and activities, then apply cost plus to that, then go back and reconcile so there is no double counting. Mm -hmm. Okay, ready to switch over to pillar two? Armando, let's swing back to Mexico. What are the changes that you anticipate happening in the Mexican rules to address pillar two? Only the Rizalaguan's rules that was implemented in 2020, I believe that this is the only rule that we need to check it because it's not on the line on the under tax payment rule. We have an, a concept in which we consider low tax jurisdictions when you are not paying at least 22.5%. There is an exception in the business activity side. So this is something that we need to revise. In the maquila industry, we don't expect that there will be any problem on that because we can reach the 15% minimum tax. So what Mexico is waiting is to see what will be the set of rules, what will be the way in which we can apply together CFC rules plus this new global set of rules. Costa Rica system is based on a territorial criterion where only income derived from services, vendor, goods located or capital utilized within the country will be taxed. So in principle, foreign income should not be taxed in Costa Rica. We don't expect that Costa Rican companies with international operation may meet with the threshold. But even in the case that the threshold was met, if the um, tax system is not modified, Costa Rica would not be entitled to tax the foreign source income. Regarding the possible implementation of Pillar 2, the main concern or challenge that Costa Rica will face is the treatment of the free trade regimes. Costa Rica, as other Latin American countries, has used the tax incentives to attract foreign investment. The growth of Costa Rica rests in a significant percentage in the foreign direct investment. And since the 90s, the country has been promoting the free trade zone regimes to attract foreign investment. This regime has been reviewed by the OECD 
in order to check if it complies with Action 5. Back in 2019, some suggestions and recommendations were made and Costa Rica modified the law in order to be in compliance with Action 5. So since 2019, the OECD confirmed that the regime was not harmful. So taking into consideration and the minimum tax, we have a big challenge to tackle. What will happen with the agreements that are in force? Those 394 companies that have the tax incentives in regard to the corporate income tax and also tax on dividends. Currently, any modification of the tax system will have to be respectful of the incentives that were given to those companies or the companies may claim damages in the future. So it's uh, something that is going to be challenged in how Costa Rica will define the political system regarding the taxing of these companies. And that's the main issue. We are a small country and we depend on the foreign investment. And most of the foreign investment during the last five or seven years have become from this regime, the companies, especially the U.S., multinational that have been established in Costa Rica in order to start their businesses. Also in Costa Rica will be holding elections in February and the new government will take place in May. So that might differ any modification of the law or any regulation that have to be issued in terms of compliance with the implementation of Pillar 2. Do you have legal stability contracts other than the concessions of the agreements that are entered with specific companies? Not in the terms that Colombia system has, but we do have uh, constitutional principles and the acquired rights have to be respected. So the companies may claim for damages. So that's something that has been discussed between the customer trade of business in Costa Rica with the tax authorities in order to see what will be the tax authorities' position in regard to the agreements that are enforced. I guess the problem with the legal stability contract is that it's not Costa Rica's rules right, that always apply. It could be someone else's rules. Right. Depending on the parent jurisdiction, an IAR could bring up the effective rate, and Costa Rica has nothing to say about it. Yeah, that is something that is being analyzed by the authorities, and they are still waiting for what will be the outcome of the Pillar 2 to see if, for instance, the free trade zone regimes that comply with Action 5 may be part of the carve-out. So that's something to keep in mind, right? Regimes that were green-lighted in relation to parts of BEPS 1.0 or other global policy objectives could actually be back in the hot seat for Pillar 2. The fact that you are low-taxed, I mean, it's not good, but that doesn't mean that you're harmful or non-cooperative. Caymans didn't pop up its rate when it came off the non-cooperating jurisdiction list. There is an interesting point in there. It is interesting to me that Cayman's coming off. And how is it otherwise being handled? based on these rules, right? Like, why wouldn't it still be on the list? Right. These jurisdictions are not harmful tax jurisdictions. The tax rate has nothing to do with that. I also see historically an evolution in this type of concepts of tax haven or harmful tax competition, etc. Because as far as I understood it, originally the concept of tax haven was associated to two aspects, basically. A very low tax rate or tax exemption plus tax opacity or lack of exchange of information. 
Then this evolved internationally. We stopped talking so much about tax havens and started speaking about harmful tax competitions or non-cooperative jurisdictions. And there, I think that in a second stage, I would say, the discussion, I think, was more centered in whether a jurisdiction was effectively exchanging tax information and not granting an anonymity and therefore not favoring practices of harmful tax planning rather than in the tax rate that it applied. I think that that happened during a second stage. And now, in a way, I see that we're not leaving behind the issue of exchange of tax information. We are more looking at the actual tax rates that, that are being applied because these mechanisms, you know, well, the subject to tax rule, the under tax payment rule, the income inclusion rule. I tend to see these types of measures that normally you would apply before VEPS or that you could apply to harmful tax jurisdictions or previously to tax havens. So I think that this has been an evolution in this Costa Rican com- the, the companies that operate on the, on the, the regime have to meet with economic substance. And also the activities are activities conducted in the country are, for example, it's not an IP regime or financial services are not allowed, for example. So it's a regime that has been confirmed that it is not harmful and because of also the substance that is required to access to it. I agree a lot with what Luis was mentioning in the sense that this concept of harmful tax competition, especially in regards to uncooperative tax jurisdictions, it's definitely something that is, has evolved over the years. Panama is included in the EU list of uncooperative tax jurisdictions. It was included in 2019. At that time, it was mainly because of certain concerns on transparency and effective exchange of information, although the country adopted several legislations to exchange information, adopted CRS, etc. The effectiveness was not completed, so the country remained on the list. But recently, there has been a new criterion under which Panama was maintaining that list, and that has to do with the foreign source income exemption. So we go back to territoriality, but now in a different front in the EU list of tax havens. So. This is very relevant and it also poses many challenges to the territoriality system, not only in Panama, but also in other countries that follow this regime or this principle, such as Costa Rica, Uruguay, Hong Kong and others. Tax authorities or government officials will have very difficult dilemma on whether they will amend the territoriality principle or even repeal some of the exemptions that are applicable in general in the legislation. And not only based on Pillar 2, but also based on this list of uncooperative tax jurisdictions. So there's a very big difference and a very clear one between base erosion on the one hand and global min tax on the other. And then there's another big difference between min tax and economic substance, because economic substance plays zero role in the Pillar 2 discussion. I think that's right. So those three things are very, very different. And then you add transparency into the mix also completely separate. As Luis mentioned, is kind of another is another feature that, that isn't as clearly in the mix because we're talking about owners and investments as opposed to particular streams of income and how those streams of income and deductions are taxed, but they're very different thing. And if you're trying to A, reform your tax jurisdiction, or B, looking at whether a tax jurisdiction would be a good place to put your capital. You got to keep your eye on all four because, because taking your eye off the ball at any one of them, you could still kind of get 
bitten by those rules, even if you're perfectly good on everything else. Luis, do you want to cover a little bit on maybe how Uruguay is dealing with its? Yeah, no problem. Well, the, the, the situation in Uruguay is similar as the one that Cristina described for Costa Rica. We have a tax system based on the source and territoriality principles. We have a corporate income tax rate of 25%, but foreign source income under the source principle is not taxable. It is also similar to the situation of Costa Rica in the sense that we also have tax-free zones in Uruguay under which the activities developed in these free zones are, are exempt from national taxes, including corporate income tax. To operate in a free zone, you have to have substance in Uruguay. So it is required to get the government approval to operate in a Uruguayan free zone to have substance in Uruguay in terms of, of assets, in terms of uh, workers, etc. And this is the reason why, at least in the case of Uruguayan free zones, the carve-outs that are contemplated for Pillar 2, although they will not solve all the cases of the companies operating in free zone, they might be important for some companies because we have many companies operating under the Uruguayan free zone system that have very relevant investments in terms of fixed assets and also very important payroll. So in a way, this could attenuate the effects. Just as another comment, we also have a similar problem with the free zone users in terms of the existence of stability clauses. But the point is that these are not included. The stability of the tax treatment granted to the free zone users is included in the free zones law. The free zones law, the government guarantees the tax benefits to the companies that acquire the status of users. So again, that's another problem. Luis, in Costa Rica, the exemptions from in these regimes are given in a specific years. For example, eight years and then four years of 50% exemption. So the, the companies that operate on the free trade zones are not exempted forever. They have an exemption that is granted just for a specific time or years. In Uruguay, is the same or? We don't have limits in terms of how long the exemption will apply. We have limits of the free zone contracts. So in a way, those two could be related. You know, if you mm -hmm. one contract expires, the conditions will change. But in general, in terms of the law, the guarantee does not have any any limit in terms of the number of years that it will apply. In I the might. case of Panama, although we expect that the foreign source income acted by the global minimum tax, we also have several other special regimes, such as free trade zones and the multinational headquarter regime. Those regimes were also, as in the case of Costa Rica, evaluated by the OECD in terms of substance and in terms of BEPS Action 5 were approved in 2019. So these regimes specifically are not zero rated, so they're not completely exempted. They have a 5% nominal rate. But these specific regimes, they have important payroll, a large amount of people working in, here in, in Panama, and they may be different because, first of all, there's no zero tax rate. And also with the carve-out regarding to payroll expense, the impact may be reduced as well. Do you have payroll withholding, like social security or some kind of social welfare tax withholding or amounts that you'd have to pay on those workers? In general, yes, we do have a social security tax payable by the employee and the employer and also individual income tax, which can go up to 25% on the top marginal rate. In some of these regimes, these taxes do not apply. But that is only for the multinational headquarter. In the rest of the regimes, normally all employees 
both foreign and nationals need to comply with individual income tax and social security contributions. I guess if I were to structure, <laughs> I'm, I'm very rebellious personality. You can probably see this right now. But maybe if I were a government, I'd say we're going to pop up the corporate income tax to 15%, but we're going to make that creditable against something like the, the labor charges or the social security types of charges that you would otherwise have to pay with respect to your employees. Maybe it's not a tax incentive, it's not a tax benefit, but it is some kind of benefit to give it back to the multinationals to retain the investment in country. But I don't know, I'm sure there's a technical tax problem with that as well, but I would at least start thinking that yeah. way if I were a government. Yeah. Yeah, Kim, that, that definitely would be something interesting to see. But in the case of Panama, it's not the first time that based on BEPS Action 5, some changes were introduced to these special regimes are granted with legal stability status for a number of years. So that was a challenge in 2019 when the corporate income tax rate of these special regimes was raised from zero to 5%. The challenge was what to do with the legal stability. So the government was able to agree with the companies established in the regime so that they would have the option to resign to the exemption and abide to the new rules or to be granted the exemption for a period of time until it expired, but pay additional taxes. For instance, additional VAT that was not included in the legislation at that point. So those were alternatives in order to negotiate uh, the raise in the tax rates. I guess when it comes right down to it, there's no absolute guarantee that different jurisdictions actually stick to 15%. Maybe not. Yeah, this is something that is very important to keep in mind. Definitely, there is no guarantee to you in your investments that you can rely your expectations in saying that you have to keep in mind the 15. As I told you, Mexico now has 22.5%. I don't know what they will want to do with that, if they want to remove that, if they want to reduce that, or they will say, this is part of my CFC regulation. So in that respect, I don't need to change anything. So, and you will have something that there is a disallowance of deductions because you are considering that it's inside of the CFC legislation and you can apply together with a new global system. So this is something that I believe that there are some specific gray areas now, which is very important to wait and see what will be the signals from OECD and all of the international framework in order to see what will be the path that they want to follow on this matter. So maybe there are ways for countries to interpret the new rules so that they don't lose ground on a net basis. It's hard to see countries being willing or even able to adopt BEPS 2.0 otherwise. Okay, so I think this was a little different from the tenor of conversation I'm used to having about BEPS 2.0. A little more weather than when in flavor. You have to wonder how many of the 140 are actually in one camp as opposed to the other. Yes, there's high level agreement in principle as to how pillar one and pillar two are gonna go, but it ain't over till it's over. In the meantime, be good, stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time. <laughs>